Lewis. Hello, mate. How you doing? I'm very well, mate. How are you? Yeah, not too bad. You're picking me up all right. I'm just on, uh, I'm just logged into the headphones. I'm picking you up absolutely fine. Great. So, thank you very much for joining me. Um, I'm really privileged and honoured um, to be joined by Lewis Moody, NBE, uh, legendary English open side flanker. Uh, joining us on or joining me on Man in the Stand. Uh, Man in the Stand is a is a sports junkies, I guess. Uh, look at, um, at at the sports we love, and in particular, we we delve into um, sports like rugby, golf, cricket, things that we particularly enjoy. And um, really honoured to be joined by uh, by Lewis to to look at uh, the Six Nations over the last, um, you know, just a look at the, the last weekend's games in particular, and in particular the Wales-England game, but also just a look at the competition itself. And, um, and it'd be great to get a, a bit of an, 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 you know, an understanding from, from Lewis. Lewis, before I sort of start um, into that, I just want to um, just have a bit of a look back at your career because it's, it's really quite um, you started with 1996 with the Leicester Tigers, uh, played through to 2010. 223 caps for the Leicester Tigers, uh, 34 caps for Bath between 2010 and 2012, uh, 71 caps for England between 2001 and 2011, five for the uh, sorry three for the British and Irish Lions, and you're a significant part of the of the England Rugby World Cup winning side of, of 2003. Um, you know, looking back at that career, that that's a fantastic career, and much of it was also blighted by injury. Um, you know, and in that time, you know, you 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 got the nickname Mad Dog Moody because of your kind of tear away style and as an open side flanker. And and speaking as a New Zealander myself, uh, I particularly you're one of my favourite players to watch play the game because you kind of remind me of that kind of club rugby open side flanker that that I used to. Stand on the on the same side of the field of and really admire and also thank God that I was actually playing going in the same direction as them because um, they were crazy but they were brilliant and uh, and and just seemed to run all day and tackle anything that moved and so you really you know back in in the southern hemisphere you, you're held in very high esteem as I'm sure you're probably aware because of the the kind of style that you play the game and um, so uh, you know uh, um, I just wanted to. Um, to say, you know, it's a, it's a great uh, it's a great career you've you've you, you know you went through and and for you um, do you, do you take a do you stand back at it now and and, and take a, a bit in seeing that career? Um, well, thanks for that uh, wonderful introduction, mate. Um, it's you know, it's it's a weird one because you're you know I'm I'm ten years retired now and uh, well ten years yeah oh goodness yeah yeah it's ten years this year. Um, and it seems like a, a distant memory, to be honest. But when you when you start reeling off the you know the the achievements and and the and the things that we did and the success that we had, um, it makes you cast your mind back and recall those um, wonderful days. You know, I grew up as a kid loving the game. You know, when the 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 juniors and the mini sections is now all touch rugby, but when. Uh, you know, when I started, and I'm not sure how old you are, Craig, but you know, I'm 40, uh, 48, so I'm just a bit older than you. Okay, okay, yeah. touch old, you've got a few years on, yeah, me, but yeah, similar, similar vintage, yeah, this. exactly. You know, we would have we would have thrown ourselves into full contact from the age of five, and and it was really that aspect of the game that, that appealed to me the most. And you talked about the sort of nickname that I picked up, which was Mad Dog, um, and I really. 
you know, I, I saw that as a term of endearment from the sort of uh, media and fans for just, as you said, the manner in which we played the game. You know, the Sunday league, um, open side, back row, whoever it may be that's just hungry to, to get out there and make a difference. And, and probably the best compliment I ever had from anyone was just a, uh, a random member of the public, a fan who came up to me after a game and said, mate, I just wanted to say thank you because I love watching you play. You play the game the way I would if I had the chance, you know. So it was just about leaving it all on the pitch and, and not coming back into the changing room and thinking, oh, could I have given a little bit more today? You know, could I have worked a bit harder? Um, and it was just the physical aspect of the game that I loved so much. And that's when, you know, you, you're retired for 10 years now. It's the hardest thing to replace because, you know, you can't wander down the streets, uh, you know, bundling people through hedges or, or, or smashing people through the uh, fruit and veg stand in the supermarket. You know, apparently it doesn't go down too well. No. Um, so, yeah, mate, I, I, I loved my career. I really did. And, and I look back on it with, with great fondness. You know, there were lots of highs and lows. You talked about, um, you know, the, the injuries. There were many of those. So I feel really lucky that, um, yeah, I think it was 16 operations, I think I tallied up. Jesus. But, you know, that, that doesn't count in all those sort of niggles and the hamstring pulls and the tweaks and all this sort of stuff that keep you out for a few days or a few weeks. Um, so when I look back and think, I actually made three World Cups and 71 caps and all that sort of stuff, I, I just feel really lucky because there are plenty of guys uh, along the way that that were that had their careers, you know, cut short by injury. Mm. And, and for whatever reason, I was always able to bounce back, you know. So uh, so I do, I do feel very privileged that I was able to still have that career despite all those uh, all those issues. Yeah, well, I mean, I can only second uh, that fan's um, words uh, for me as well, watching a player like you. And uh, because once I also played, you know, uh, rugby, but was always in awe of the guy, never uh, to any kind of standard and was always absolutely in, in awe of the guys like you that, as I said, those, those open side flankers are particularly, it's a kind of a, it's kind of a, one of the more romantic positions on the rugby field. And uh, if I could use that term, because it's kind of the guy that it just absolutely has to run all day, make probably the highest tackle counts um, and just put his body where it really shouldn't be uh, in terms of contact points and, and collision points. And yet, and often they are not the biggest guy on the field because, you know, you don't, being open side or blind side flanker, you don't can't really be too big because you need to be carting yourself around the field all day. And so it tended to be that old adage of it's not the size of the fight and the uh, dog and the fight, it's the fight and the dog. And so a lot of the... They're really, I mean, in, in say, New Zealand, we have such a dearth of of, of rugby talent, and so we, would, yeah. I would play club rugby with uh, with open side flankers, but a couple of them spring to mind for me, who were not huge guys, but were absolute wrecking balls on the field, and um, and just were just mad, uh, and in a great way, but mad, you know, mad in a great way, and just would put yeah. every ounce of themselves on that field to the point there were one guy I played with in particular was. To the point where the opposition just didn't want to know about him. We, you know, would would be actually the backs would be looking up to see where he was before they got the ball. Do you know, um, he'd made that much of an impression on them uh, that they really didn't actually want to be in his in his sight lines. And so that you know, I, I know what that fan meant. Uh, you know, and, and and it's um and it's a you know it's a great thing to see when you, when you see players such as yourselves. And, and that's why, as I say, you're held in, in very high esteem. Can I, can I just say, can I look back at your, 
uh, your early, you alluded to your younger years. Can you just sort of tell me um, what was your p- path into the game as a boy? And, and did you did you look at other sports? Did you like and pl- play other sports as a young guy? Craig, I loved all sports, mate. Um, rugby, rugby, I was introduced to probably first when I was five. So just a, a, a mate of my mum's came over and her son was, was joining the local rugby club and, and was a bit nervous and, and wanted a friend. So I went along with him. Right. And, and I, I was instantly hooked and, and he left the, the following year. But, you know, after finding that love of rugby very early on, I went then when we went to school, I, I played all sports, mate, cricket, hockey, football, athletics. Um, so you, you, were just the, a, you were just a sports junkie. You just love sports. Oh, mate, I did. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, know what he's, I don't know. I think sportsmen and women have this. Oh, maybe I'm speaking for everyone, but certainly myself. You, you always you look back and think, hmm, I wonder if, you know, if I'd stayed a bit longer in cricket, could I have made it as cricket as yeah. well? And, and, you know, when I when I retired from playing rugby, I joined my local cricket club down here, uh, Hinton Charterhouse, and, and played a few games, still thinking that, you know, the decision I made when I was 16 um, to do athletics over cricket at school, so I got asked by their first team cricket coach to play. Yeah. Um, I did one game and then said, look, I need to keep fit for the rugby season. So my, my mind, you know, my focus was already set at that age at 16 by the time I got there on where I wanted to go with my sport. Yeah. But when I finished um, my rugby career at, what, 33, I thought, you know what, I'll go back to cricket and, you know, I probably can play a pretty decent standard. You know, I was quite good as a kid. <laughs> when you get back out there, I mean, you just suddenly appreciate, don't you, how far off you are <laughs> and, and all those years of not, yeah. <laughs> not playing. Yeah. I mean, I, I played a couple of games for the first team and it was great fun. And I bought the sort of natural enthusiasm that I brought to rugby. But sadly, when the cricket game's like... 10 hours long or whatever it is my natural enthusiasm starts to wane after about two and a half and I'm just left flagging on the boundary somewhere having uh, you know having chased every ball down and then realized okay this is uh, this is the long game not the short game yeah maybe yeah. not my natural suitor and uh, did you like to bet or bowl Lewis or you did a bit of both uh my, my eyesight I was short-sighted from a young age and my eyesight got gradually worse as I got older so I was uh, I was a bowler first and foremost because my batting deteriorated. Just the, the ability to see the ball. Was, so, was... so obviously your eyesight. I mean, the, the, in terms of being an open side flanker, it was it was probably an incentive to stay pretty close to the ball if you could, um, due, <laughs> due to your eyesight. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, I had I had the great misfortune of uh, when I moved to Bath from Leicester um, in in, a, in the local derby game for Bath, which was you know. Bristol were were in the championship at that stage. It was Gloucester. Um, we got a rollicking from the coach at halftime because we were playing abysmally. And I went out with the first opportunity to get into, whether it was the fly half or the fullback, whoever I could reach. And the fullback was the first to catch the ball, a high ball, which I was chasing. And he slowed down to set himself up for the kick, at which point I accelerated, as I always did do, to try and charge the kick down. And he got the ball away just in time. And But the follow-through caught my arm and my arm ended up, my hand ended up, the force of his kick went straight into my eye. Um, and, and I got partially, well, I got immediately blinded in the, in the, in the left eye. Wow. And, and I, was, I was blind for two or three days afterwards. Wow. It all, it all came back. But it meant I was, I was left with, a, with, a, with a, a scar like you have from any bruising, right? So essentially my eye went into shock and the, and the, and the, uh, due to the trauma and it, it left a scar at the back of my retina, which meant from as soon as my eyesight came back, I had this sort of 
this like top quarter, left quarter of my eyesight that became this big white patch. Wow. And um and I had to spend, you know, two or three weeks with the with the consultants and the and the specialists at England doing training and they were like, Look, don't worry about it because your brain, um, your brain is able to fill in the void. So yeah, I, I don't notice it at all now and, and I didn't, you know, probably a year or two after. But um you know, to show you how quickly we were able to recover even back then, and that was 2010, I think. It's incredible. Uh, I, was, I, I, I played against you boys six weeks later, so the All Blacks I played against six weeks later, um, you know, haven't been temporarily blind and, and left with a, a third of the eyesight in one eye Jeez. after an ill-timed charge town. But, um, but yeah, so that's why my, my bowling is my focus now, mate, not my battle. <laughs> yeah. and, and, and slip catching, not standing on the boundary, because it takes me about an hour to figure out where the ball is. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So when did you when did you first kind of think, Lewis, that oh hang on, I could actually possibly kind of make a, a bit of a career out of this or, or, or be paid to play when did rugby go from being a, a passion to being something that you could actually perhaps see a a, a, a way forward for you in? Um well so when I when I was at school uh, I think my parents were always worried about what I was going to do afterwards, and I, I sort of set out on a career in the in the military, wanting to go through okay. Sandhurst and all that. Yep. Um, and I was really lucky, you know. I think we're all blessed from time to time with some good fortune. And and the coach at my my school was we had lots of coaches, and they were brilliant. But um, the coach of my first team in the last year was a guy called Ian Dosser Smith and and. Andy Walsenheim, two of them, and they both had close connections to, to Leicester, but Ian so much so that he played over 300 games and was club captain and an all-round club legend. So I had him as my sort of mentor in that final year, and uh, and upon finishing my, my schooling, he just sort of said, look, you know, go down to the Tigers um, pre-season and, and see how you get on. Um, but prior to prior to that happening, you know, you talked about when did you see the moment, you know, when you thought you could maybe make it. You know, obviously for me, rugby didn't turn professional until, was it, you know, the World Cup 95s yeah. seemed to be that turning point, right? But so the summer of 96, yeah. that 96 season was the first real professional season here in the UK, yeah. the first fully professional season. And, um, and so it was never a career path as I was a kid coming through which is why I chose the army. But I remember at the age of 14, my dad took me to, to Twickenham to watch a game because obviously I loved the, I loved rugby. Um, and we watched England-Wales and it was when Paul Thorburn was playing, you know, wonderful kicker for Wales and captain. But the team were just appalling at that stage in uh, in time. Mm. And, and England absolutely hammered them. And Will, I was a centre until I was 17. So okay. Will, Carling, Will Carling was my schoolboy hero. And I remember leaving the game, and it still sticks with me to this day. And Dad asked me the question. He said, you know, would you, you know did you enjoy it? Yeah, I loved it, Dad. You know, do you want to come back? Yeah, I definitely want to come back. But the next time I come back, I want to be playing, Dad. And uh, and that's what I said to him. And <laughs> it probably sounded super arrogant. But actually, you know, I was, I was the opposite. I was a very shy kid, you know, um, it took me a while to get to know people, all those sorts of things. But I was just, I just knew I had this inbuilt self-belief at the age of, you know, what was I then, 14, 15, turning 15. And I knew rugby was, you know, my path. I knew it was the thing I loved. And, and almost to many respects, I wasn't academic. So it was where I felt I gained respect, um, mm. you know, and could influence the game and, and you know, gain success myself and, you know, um, 
it gave it gave me a huge amount of self confidence, I suppose, and 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 inner belief as a young man that I lacked in many other areas. Mm. So at that fourteen fifteen window was why, as I said already, you know, at sixteen I was able to make a decision and go, okay, I'm, I'm not going to do cricket despite being asked to be in the first team, which is a, an enormous honour at school. Mm. Um, I'm going to do athletics, which was you know, is not a team sport. It was you know very individual, and I was multidisciplined. You know, if I was if I was to do athletics as a, as a proper sport, I would have been a decathlete, I presume. Okay. Um, and I was the sort of person that got called on to do the 400 metres if the 400 metre runner went down okay. the hurdles or the javelin. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so so that was that was me really, mate. And and then I was very fortuitous, the fact that I'd made those decisions without being pushed. Naturally, they'd all come to me during the tenure, you know, 14, 15, then 16, focus on my athletics to keep fit for rugby. Yeah. Um, I was just making me junior international sides. And then to have Ian Smith there as my first team coach to be able to go, mate, I want I want you to go down to Leicester and see how you get on. Having co- I went through all the age grades at, at the Tigers, yeah, um, before they had academies, and and that was I mean that was a, you know, being thrown into the uh, you know into the boiling pot. That was oh my goodness, you know, surrounded by all my schoolboy heroes at Leicester, you know, Johnson, Cockrell, Rory Underwood, Dean Wick, Dean Richards, uh, yeah, to name a few. Yeah. Um, so as an 18-year-old skinny public schoolboy who'd been a centre until the year before to suddenly turn up as a as a back rower, I think you know generally the guys were like, "What position are you?" I was like, uh, "A flanker." Uh, You're joking, right? Because I was like 13 stone or something. <laughs> and uh, you know, as soon as thankfully my fitness, you know, my fitness was uh, was was pretty high back in those days. And you know, as soon as we started running, they sort of got a, a reason maybe as to why I was. Uh, oh, as a flanker, and uh, and yeah, but it was mate, it was wicked. It was it was a tough first. Uh, yeah, to, it to must have world. been. I was going to say the, the so you played that preseason um, for Leicester's and and uh, and they obviously took you on and and saw something in you and um, you know obviously a, a no lack of courage on the field in terms of the tackle and 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 a huge amount of endurance by the sounds of it. I mean, uh, the, you know that that ability to just run and run and run. Uh, you know. It, as you say, maybe being 13 stone dripping wet, but still the ability to just chop everything down in your field, I guess, um, in your field of view to, you know, um, it would obviously have been the, one of the major factors to, but how much of benefit, it must have been massive benefit for you to, uh, I was talking uh, the other week with Mike Phillips about this as well. Mike Phillips was very kind to come on the show the other week and talk to me yeah. about his background and his um, uh, early days in, in Welsh club rugby. And, and he said, he got so much benefit from playing from with those older guys, um, and I'd imagine it'd be the same for you, Lewis. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, great that you had Mike on as well. I loved, I loved playing against him. He was like another back rower when uh, he was, when he yeah, played for Wales. yeah, you know, huge, huge number nine, yeah, you know, quick, elusive, skillful, um, yeah. But, uh, but, but yeah, you know, it was. I, th- I think when you're thrown into those situations, you either sink or swim, don't you? And you know, yeah. as an 18 year old, yeah. you know, I was very shy, so I wasn't particularly comfortable being there, surrounded by all these guys that I'd idolised for for donkeys years, and and feeling right out of my comfort zone. But as I said before, you know, I had that inner belief, and I think, you know, all competitive sportsmen or women, you know, they have that inner belief in their own personal ability, and okay, that. It will allow them to overcome feelings of anxiety, frustration, um, you know, insecurity, maybe in the surroundings that you're in, because you you know you're doing what you love. Therefore, you're going to do everything you can to stay in this environment, even if it 
you know is uncomfortable at first you know you don't know anyone nobody mm. really speaks to you <laughs> because mm. you know you, you need to earn your stripes and all that sort of stuff but um i i could i could certainly echo his you know his his thoughts in that being around different eras and age groups of, of players had a huge impact because when i turned up at leicester it was really simple you know there was no there's no airs or graces. You just turned up and, and you worked hard. If you didn't work hard, you were out the door straight yeah. away. Yeah. And that wasn't just on, on the training pitch. That was in the gym. That was in conditioning. That was, you know, being on time for team socials. And, you know, it was it was everything. But um, yeah. you know, we had guys like Darren Garforth who were just fierce, horrible human beings on the rugby pitch. Yeah. And, you know, you, you knew in your first sessions, as certainly happened to me, you know, not even in your first sessions for your first year or year and a bit until you're getting the chance to play you're going to be tested all the time and and we were and i absolutely loved that though because that's where i came into my own you know yeah the competitive nature the physical competitive nature of the game brought out i'll say the best in me you know it could have been the worst if you look at it from an outside point of view but it brought out the natural competitor yeah and the aggression and the you know the never say die approach to you know the game or the situation or that moment you know i spoke to um one of the England cricketers and asked him about how Johnny Beffert asked him about how they dealt with the pressure of the, the situation about, and he was just really simple. He said it was about, you know, dealing with that moment is about each ball, take it as it comes, which sounds very stereotypical, but he said that was literally, it. he's like, I play each ball to the best of my ability. And, you know, if I do that consistently, I'll, you know, I know I'll put in a good innings. And I suppose that was the same for me. It was, you know, dealing with the moment yeah, to the best of your ability. But, um, Mate, it was awesome. You have to say as well that the young guys, obviously I started out as a young lad, um, but as you as you get older, you feed off those young guys as well. You know, the enthusiasm that they bring to training. The oh, ideas. I'm sure. Yeah, and, I'm sure. I mean, that side of it was was as thrilling for me um, as, as being a part of it and learning learning tricks off the old dogs, you know. Well, well uh, yeah, it's funny you should say the young guys. There's a young guy I want to talk about, actually, now we'll, uh, when we move through to uh, look at uh, the England-Wales game um, by the name of Tom Curry, who reminds me a lot of you. Um, uh, I, I was so impressed with Tom Curry um, uh, um, against uh, Wales the other day. What a what an exciting young player this guy is. Now he's uh, he's been developing for a while now. I think he played his first game for England when he was, when he was 18, and it was an Argentina tour to Argentina um, and you could tell at that point you know he was he was a vastly different beast to the 18 year old Lewis Moody that turned up at, um, at the Leicester Tigers that was sort of 13 stone yeah he was um, you know he was already a fully developed athlete you know you could see well I say fully developed he was on that road already you know um, and you could see that he was a natural talent you maybe use that uh, word raw he was a raw talent initially yeah um you know he's got a brother ben who if you spoke to any of the junior selectors at the time they would have said ben was was going to be the more natural um progressor through to uh that england team yeah and because his work rate his tenacity all those things they felt was slightly higher whereas tom was maybe more of a athletic player more skillful but they didn't think he had the tenacity and, and the work rate um mm. And I think you know he's proved he's proven all those selectors wrong as as often happens in that yeah. you know he yeah. is such a complete player. I I thoroughly enjoy you know watching him play. You know the way he can you know 
not only the the work rate over the ball, his you know his strength in the tackle, his ability to find space and link with the link with the backs. You know he's got that sort of appetite for for work that you have to have as a as a back row forward. Um, it must be incredibly frustrating at the minute. You know I know we'll move on to this, but being in that England setup because they've got so many talented players. Yeah, you know, for whatever reason, the games keep slipping away from them. And, you know, Tom wasn't on the, I think he may have had a, a penalty here or there. But, you know, so many of the other guys at the weekend were conceding penalties left, right and centre. You know, something I often, I also know about being a back rower. You know, it was part of, uh, it was, I don't say part of your job, but it was part of the territory. You know, you always sort of, you uh, you worked on that white line, you know, and trying to find fight the balancing act. Richie McCoy seemed to get it spot on. I don't know how he managed it, but yeah, you know, I I more often than not seem to fall on the other side of it. I'm going to blame the the colour of my hair, the, the white blonde hair, <laughs> gave me away. Whereas Richie could cover it up. But, yeah, um, yeah, but I think know, I, I think you're right, I, Lewis. I think you're uh, I I think you're right about Tom Curry. I think he's such an exciting player, and and I think you're right about the English team. And we will get get into that because I do think there are a number of those English players who are really really exciting. And and I want to get into that actually about how they played the game against Wales. Um, but I just before I get into that, I just want to um, uh, just talk about the the other game of that weekend, the first game of that weekend. So let's let's move on to the games themselves. So. Ireland played Italy uh, uh, in Ireland. Um, no, sorry, I beg your pardon. It was in Italy, wasn't it? Uh, and uh, and we came out the victors, forty-eight ten against Italy. Now this was always a bit of a dead rubber. Um, but I just want—I've been asking some of the other players. I've been—I talked to Jordan Murphy and I talked to um, Mike Phillips, and I'm going to ask you the same question. What are your thoughts on Italy at the moment? Uh, uh, and just uh, you know, they've been in this competition now for a number of years. I have some pretty strong thoughts about Italy because I liken I liken the experiment of Argentina who joined the rugby championship um, a number of years ago uh, and were the basically the whipping boys for Australia South Africa and New Zealand for for a couple of years and then they got a bit better and then they rolled Australia and then they rolled South Africa and this year they rolled well last year they rolled New Zealand Um, and and they are now Argentina are a a properly, properly good team who can beat anyone in the in the world on their day, and I contend that's because they've come into the rugby championship, and I haven't seen the same thing from Italy, and I just feel that it's a bit of a failed experiment. But I want to know what you think, Lewis, from having played against them and seeing them against uh, again and seeing them now, where they haven't now won a Six Nations game for thirty games. Yeah, well, I have to admit, I would, I would tend to be coming from from your point of view as well, I think for a long time now, you know, we played Argentina, just go off topic for a minute. We played Argentina back in 2006 and we lost to them at Twickenham when we were booed off the pitch. Yeah. And the following year, Argentina went on to play in the semi-final of the World Cup. Yeah. It just shows you though, the, the progress that, that that side were making and then, you know, their inclusion in, uh, in Super Rugby or, or the Championships. Yeah. It's called now, isn't it? Yeah. Um, you know, just was again another step for them becoming even better and better. And, you know, it's not like it happened overnight. As you said, it's been a long progression. Yeah. Um, and, and when you look at Italy, but they have really made progress, enormous progress. When you look at Italy, for whatever reason, and they're very similar in many ways, you know, that you would say that, you know, the major sport in, in both countries is, is football, whereas yeah. rugby plays second fiddle. But, you know, amateur sport in Argentina you know, you would probably say the major amateur sport, I think, is, is rugby mm. by many, many um, clubs over there. But, 
when you look at Italy, I get really frustrated because I, I do believe they, you know, they they deserve the opportunity. They have some great club sides that have been working hard and taking in different players from all over the world, trying to develop their game. Mm. Um, but they just they just can't find a way. It doesn't matter who they bring in, what players they develop. You know, how much emphasis they put on the the, the junior programs and the academies. You know, it's been well. Was it been over twenty years now that they've been in the Six Nations? I think. Yeah. And it has been twenty-one years, and it? it was two thousand they came in. I think, and um, they, the progress is, if anything, it's it's fall, it's gone backwards. You know, despite the likes of Conor O'Shea and Mike Cat were the last two incumbents over there in uh, in Italy, and they, you know they are two quality individuals, very attacking, obviously open-minded, yeah. great thinkers of the game, and you think. If anyone can make a difference or change things up, it, it could be them. But I, I have been for a long time now, you know, wanting to see promotion and relegation in the uh, in the Six Nations because I think you're right. You know, you want to give sides the opportunity to improve, as we did Italy. Mm. But you don't then just want to keep them there when they're not improving. You want to, uh, you know, as as when you're playing in a team sport competition for place is everything and it drives performance in my opinion and you know in in a in a tournament environment you know if you're guaranteed that you're going to stay in that tournament no matter what then what is your motivation really when you know that winning the six nations is no you know is not is not within their reach italy no so each year they go in winning a game is the sort of goal for them so i mean what is the point of that yes if any other side comes up it may it may be the same outcome. They may lose every game, you know. But at least if you've got promotion and relegation, you're giving more sides in world rugby or in European rugby the opportunity to develop and play against better teams consistently, mm. so that their their game is growing, their fan base is growing, the excitement around the game is growing, and you know all of a sudden rugby as a whole is is getting better across Europe and you know that has been the case anyway with France and you know over over the last couple of years but um I, I think broadening that scope to allow sides the opportunity to to move up and down and to really push for places and I think people are nervous of doing that because what if Scotland goes down one year what if England goes down one year yeah. well you still have we have that in the premiership don't you, you know, yeah everyone what everyone was worried about that for donkey's years about oh what if you know Northampton or Leicester or Bath go down or Saints or Quinns or well you know most of them have gone down you know Quinns Saints yeah. uh, Newcastle you know a lot of these big sides have all gone down and, and all bounced back and it's been you know, I hope better for the game and, and probably better experience for them, but also just for the fans, knowing that there is that, you know, relegation battle. You see, I remember see, watching Bath go to their relegation battle in 2000 and something, and um, Danny Grucock was the captain at the time. And for them, staying up was, you know, as exuberant as winning at the time. You could see the elation on their faces when, you know, they avoided relegation. So those battles for the fans, I think, are as exciting at the end of a season as is sometimes playing in a in a premiership final. So, you know, I don't I don't buy into that. I think there should be promotion relegation. But Yeah, I, 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 I agree. I, I agree with you, Lewis. I, I, I think there should be and I and I'm willing to contend having watched that uh, this this progress by Argentina and having looked at a team like Georgia in the Rugby World Cup over the last yeah. few years, I would contend to you and that it wouldn't be without the realms of possibility um, for Italy to have to play Georgia in a um, promotion relegation game in terms of the right to play in the Six Nations and for and for Georgia to roll Italy. I think Georgia could 
not the first year, but I'm. If you give a team like Georgia the chance to to play um, in this competition, it would absolutely um, invigorate uh, an already growing sport in, in that part of the world. And funnily enough, I was in um, I was in Vegas at the at Las Vegas um, Rugby Sevens uh, last last year or the year before, and 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 was there with a few friends. And who should walk into the bar we were in? But Serevi, the um, the famous Fijian yeah, yeah. Rugby Sevens player. Well, you'll never guess who he's trying, um, who's been um, um, contracted to develop rugby in Russia. Um, and so Serevi, the king of sevens rugby, um, is was there with the Russian rugby team, um, Russian rugby sevens team, you know, developing rugby sevens in Russia. And they're trying to, and he was telling us that they're trying to develop their fifteens game, and that's great for rugby. You know, if a t- if a country like Russia can turn its attention, I mean, they're they're obviously they obviously have played at the Rugby World Cup. They're getting their act together, and. If you've got a competition like the Six Nations for a developing, you know, countries like Russia and Georgia and and, and Spain and other countries to aim at, what a great incentive! Uh, and I agree with your assertion that we can't just make the Six Nations a closed shop because Italy just thinks, oh, thank God, we're here every year and we find if we can just win a game. Well, that's not working. Clearly, it's not working because Italy are just. And as you say, there's been South African coaches. There's been New Zealand. John Kerwin was a coach for a while. There's been there's been rafts of coaches um, through that Italy um, system. It's never going to be um, the, the the main game in in, in, Italy, um, in Italy. That's fine, um, but uh, it's not never going to be in the main game in Argentina. And yet Argentina, I, I mean, I, I will I will tell you this now. I think I think they'll go very deep in the next Rugby World Cup. And um, and I think uh, you know for a team like. Georgia, Russia, Spain—who you know—all these uh, c- countries to aim at something like a Six Nations berth and have to play off for it. Um, th- this is this can only be good for rugby. I totally agree, and you, and you touched on the sevens there as well. You know, it wasn't long ago that you know I, I'm just trying to think some of the you know Spain, Portugal, Nigeria, uh, Greece. Um, you know, so many countries were added to the the sevens World Series. Yeah, and all of a sudden, rugby around the world, you know, or in, in those sevens countries that were giving the opportunity was was growing and yeah. you know to see the likes of Portugal competing you know um it was just I, I think those sides need the opportunity that's you know that's all it's about isn't it it's about giving everyone equal opportunity to yeah. to play against quality sides and develop their game absolutely so let's then move on to the the the, the big game of the weekend and uh I don't know what you thought, Lewis, but I thought it was an absolutely cracking game of rugby. I thought it was fantastic. So Wales versus England in, uh, at the Millennium Stadium in Wales, um, and and Wales came out uh, forty twenty four victors. I don't think that scoreline reflected the game at all. Um, I thought it was a it was a fantastic game, very tight. And uh, you know, I've I've got a sort of a rundown of the game here, but but I just really wanted first of all to get your impressions of the game, Lewis, and what you sort of saw as an ex-England international, um, as you said, you alluded to before, this is a very good England team who, when they spark and actually run it, and and, uh, and that's something I want to sort of mention is, I think, to watch them, when they actually started spinning the ball wide and running onto it, they're really great to watch. And, they, and that's how they completely blew the All Blacks off the paddock in the Rugby World Cup um, semi-final in Japan. And, and and I saw sparks of that against Wales, but then it, then it fades away again. But, Lewis, can you sort of give me your feelings about what you saw in that, in that game? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was... Uh... 
there was always going to be a game, you know, Wales, so Wales at home, you know, in the, it's the principality now, you know, in Cardiff yeah. um, is always a tough game for any Englishman and, you know, irrelevant of crowds or, or not. Um, but England came in having obviously lost to Scotland in the first game, beating Italy. Okay, great. Um, they knew they had to impress and they knew they had to change things up because I think, the, you know, one of the, one of the areas that they really struggled against Italy was not being able to adapt to their game at all. You know, they, they had very few attacking chances. They kicked a lot of the possession away that they had and just allowed Hogg and Scotland to keep playing down there in half. I thought Scotland played a brilliant game against England and hats off to them winning the first time in 38 mm. years. Um, and going into this game, I you know, I, I really expected England to come out and play. And, and actually... They did. They played some really good rugby at points. And as you said, you know, when, you know, a, a couple of times during the game that they created some really good attacking opportunities. Um, there were also several times during the game where I felt we were needlessly kicking the ball away again for, mm. for absolutely no reward. Mm. <clears throat> and that's that's been a, a really frustrating part of England's game for a long time. You know, of course, kicking is a part of the game and the strategy of playing, keeping the opposition pinned down in their own 22, make them play out, you know, or put the high balls up and contest them, try and win them back. Um, but it, there was just this, the pointless kicking just frustrates me when, the, you know, England, they're in a strong attacking position. They've not had much territory. You kick the ball back to the opposition and then you spend another five, ten minutes defending. You could see when England kept hold of the ball, you know, they built multiple phases. They got the big ball carriers going forward. <clears throat> I think the loss of, or the lack of inclusion of, of Manu to Alangi, um, you know, is a is a is a game changer for England because they haven't found the ability to replace that sort of go forward in midfield yet. And we've seen the you know the the toing and froing of changes in the in the centre pairing with Farrell and Slade coming back in. We had Ollie Lawrence, you know, we've had we've had other uh, Jonathan Joseph, other different combinations in there for a while, um, and they've not quite found the way of getting that same go forward without him in there. Um, but that being said, England came out and I thought played really well in the first half. They they weren't on the right side of the of the scoreline, but they were very close. You know, Farrell kicked his his goals, and I, you know, you're listening to the commentators and watching the game. You could see that the penalties, and you could see that the referee was starting to, you know, was not going to be on England's side that day, um, and the penalties were starting to grow. And if they could have, if at halftime they could have cut out the penalties in the second half, gone, look, lads, you know, the referee, for whatever reason, we can't, we can't get him on our side. So let's just, let's keep on the back foot. Let's, let's not push the, the you know, the, the offside line. Let's, let's not go for those 50-50 balls. Let's just trust our defence, which was pretty solid, you know, for the majority of the game by the, by the last half. And uh, yeah, but for whatever reason, come the second half, it felt like in England just capitulated in that sense. You know, they got, you know, they, they dealt, it felt like they dealt with the frustrations of whether you believed the, you know, the, the, the first try for Wales should or shouldn't have been. In, in my opinion, do you know what? Fair play to, to, to Bigger. He saw the opportunity, he took it and executed it brilliantly. And England, I couldn't understand. Yes, the, the captain has to pull his players in. There should always be at least one or two players that are keeping an eye on what's going on. So as soon as that huddle breaks up, you're sprinting into position to cover off any, you know, any chance the opportunity has or may have got from that breakup. And and you saw it on the right hand side of the pitch with England. And I, I think it was Watson and and someone else maybe, uh, maybe Daly sprinting to cover that. Yeah. But that left hand side was 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 not given the same um, attention. So 
great credit to Wales. You know, I think that was I think that was solely down. Yes, you can argue the ref didn't give him time, but you, as a professional athlete, you have always got to be aware. You know, it's just that simple. That you know, you shouldn't allow, you shouldn't take your eye off the ball. It's like turning your back to the opposition when a penalty has been given. You know, it just should never happen. Um, well, I thought I thought so, that England. Well, uh, I thought that it, when that happened, as you say, that so that was kind of after after about fifteen minutes. Uh, it was it was a very it was a really close arm wrestle at that stage. It was three all. Yeah. Honours were pretty even. Um, uh, England had had made some um, telling runs, as had Wales. That the the, the defence was willing, and we all it was kind of the game that you know we all, we all thought it was going to be. And then, as you say, um, you know, um, Dan Bigger um, takes his opportunity, looks up. Um, and, and and kicks it to the corner, um, gathered by Josh Adams, um, and, and he and he scores it, you know, to make it ten three. And as you say, um, what what also um, uh, what also was I thought was really fascinating was um, the the fact that England actually the next fifteen minutes they they, they went England were, were were excellent in the way that they they never let their head drop on that though they they came back uh, and they scored a penalty um then uh, then they then the, and it sort of went back and forth back and forth in again for a while and it, and at half time um you know they were 17 14 down um england was 7 uh, 14 17 down but all the momentum in the last 10 minutes of the first half i thought lewis was kind of with england uh, i don't know what you thought no, 100% agree. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, they were building nicely. You're right. And like the professional side that they are and, and the incredibly talented side that they are, you know, they were able to to deal with that and just put it behind them, even though, you know, they, they then had the um, the Lewis Rees-Zamet try as well, which, you know, they, they were just able to put that behind them and carry on with their jobs. You know, Owen Farrell made some good decisions, I thought, you know, at times kicking to the, kicking to the corner, um, at times taking the points when they were on offer, just kept the scoreboard ticking over. So come half time, they were... As you say, in not not necessarily in the ascendancy, but it felt like they had the they had the momentum going into half time, and all of a sudden, you know, things could have been very different. And actually, coming out the other side of half time, Craig, you know, they fought back, and it came. What was it? 24, 24 all at one point, I think. Twenty four all at one point. Yeah, it was. I mean, I, 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 so I want to get into that second half in a minute, but I just want to pull you back on that um, on that knock on that. I don't think that was a knock on. Um, sorry, I sorry, I beg your pardon. I don't think that that was that wasn't a knock on. I mean, how can that not have been a knock on? I, I thought that was. I mean, I thought that was an awful decision. As a neutral, um, you know, I'm, I'm looking at that game, watching it for the game itself, and I thought, yeah. how can you not rule that as a knock on? Um, what did you think? Well, it, it felt. I go with gut instinct. It felt like a knock on, didn't it? Yeah, you know? it did, so it, it, and, it, and it looked like a knock on. Um, yeah. You know, I'm I'm certainly not the person to speak to when it comes to the idiosyncrasies and the, and the finer detail of uh, of rugby laws and uh, and all that side of things. But it looked like a knock on immediately. You can see the player, you know, Zamet reacted to it and went, oh, "Okay, yeah." Yeah, I'm even he that. looked like it. Yeah, even he thrown yeah. his head up and thought, "Oh no." Uh, it, I mean, look, I, I'm the same. You, I mean, you, it gets down to physics almost at that point because yeah. the, the ball. I mean, he uh, Josh Adams chips it through. Um, uh, uh, Re- uh, it, um tries to gather it. it. It goes. I don't see how you can be running forward. It hits your hand, and and the ball travels backwards. It, it it's it went down onto his leg, and then um and then uh, and then forward off his leg. But at the time that it went from his hand to his leg, 
I, it's kind of has to be going forward. Um, I, I wonder, Craig. I wonder what. So one of the one of the things I was thinking about with this, and I don't know the answer to it, is but obviously when you're kicking the ball, you know, you're dropping it onto your foot. You're essentially sort of dropping it forward, right, to kick yeah. it. Yeah. So yeah. I'm wondering because if it had hit, so when he touched it, the ball the ball comes down, goes onto his leg, and then hit the England player behind him. I wonder if the ball had hit his hand and then hit the England player, whether it would have been deemed a knock-on. But because it hits his leg, it's almost like he's still in control. Well, he, he clearly wasn't in control of it, but he's then able to kick it. As yeah, I, you know, you can, I can sort of understand why they get to the decision they do. I can sort of understand it, but. You know, if you're looking at the finer detail of the laws and all that sort of stuff, now I don't know what that says, and I suppose that's the beauty of rugby, isn't it? There's so many flipping laws or rules or whatever we call them. I can't remember now. Yeah. You know, but there's so many of them that uh, that they're open to um, debate sometimes, and and that's the frustration around it. But I think when we when we all looked at that, we went, yeah, it's a knock on. And, yeah. Yeah. And and how how you can then go and slow it all down and go, yeah, yeah, actually, no, that was that was fine. Um, you know, it is what it is. But hats off to Wales again because you know they did what you should do and any professional would do. You played to the whistle and they, yeah. they took the opportunity. They scored. Yeah, Liam Williams. Liam Williams scored a great, a good, a good try. And as you say, that they, they kept the whistle. Uh, what I really liked though about England was that was that was tough to swallow. But they, um, but they never let their heads drop and they got up again and played probably I think some of the best rugby that they played in the game at that point where they came, they started running from depth. George Ford, I love watching George Ford when he starts passing and and passing wide and running. When he starts seeing angles, George Ford, I think, is one of the best uh, standoffs playing the game. And, I, and, and it was lovely to see him and the England forwards, uh, sorry, backs, running onto the ball uh, and on the front foot, um, running and passing, running from depth. And then um, they built, really built a great passage of play England um, to eventually see um, Anthony Watson score a great try in the corner um, through the speed of hands, you know, which was once again, it's great to see England's speed of hands and, and beating the speed of the man and, and then Anthony Watson finishing it really well in the corner. Um, and, and that for me was really heartening to see because um, it just showed me that England can play that way if, you know, if they want to. And I don't think they should kind of con- try and concentrate on, on too much on this kind of um, four domination game and, and winning in the, in the collisions. Um, that's obviously an important part, but it's nice to see some of the subtleties and, and some of the running from, from, from speed and from depth because that looked that was sadly lacking against Italy the couple of weeks before where they looked so flat-footed. And as you alluded to, they, maybe they didn't, they played into Italy's hands a little bit and ended up playing a bit of foursome back. But, but, it, but it was so nice to see in this game, they didn't, they didn't, uh, they did. They saw. They saw a chance. They started spinning it and started running it. The gaps appeared, and Watson scored. And unfortunately, Farrell failed to convert. But that, as I say, that took that. That was a great response to that that passage from Wales and took England into the sheds. Only three points down at half time, um, and, and so it was all on for you know for, for young and old in, in the second half. And I. And and it nearly was seventeen all because the the first penalty of the game was Farrell had a difficult penalty. It has to be said it was a difficult penalty from from close enough to straight out, but from uh, near enough to about forty eight meters or something or forty six meters out. And he and he and he pushed it wide, which I mean you, know, you can't really blame him for that. It was a tough chance, tough chance. But that was really um, you know England 
had kept the momentum. They went out. They must have, I think, probably gone into the sheds at halftime and said, "Boys, we're we're right in this, and we've we've actually been the better team for the last probably t- at least ten minutes." Um, they started the second half well, and it looked like that might just carry on. And then and then someone came on the field. Or I just want to. Um, uh, I think you changed the course of the game, and that was um, Callum Sheedy from um, this New Wales um, first five who took over from Bigger. I thought he was outstanding, Lewis. I don't know what you thought. Yeah, I mean he's been buying his trade in the in the Premiership now uh, at Bristol for for a while, and it's Bristol, isn't it? Yeah, it's Bristol. Um, and he's you know he's just a he's a talented young man, and and I think you see that when you're given what what you what you want to see when people like Sheedy get given the opportunity to play international rugby, you want to see them take it and make a difference, right? Whether it's a yeah. young guy coming through, you know, whether even you know if you're if you're in the team, and okay, maybe if it's not the guy in your position who might be playing that day, but you know, if it's if it's the other guys around you, you know, that are coming in, the young lads, you want to see them take that opportunity. You want to see, you don't want to see them, you know, stumble. So I think that's why it was so fascinating to, to see how Sheedy got on, and and he played a brilliant game. You know, he's clearly very confident. Um, you know, well, I think what, what was so brilliant about him, I think, was he kind of ripped the heart out of England a little bit because he just kept landing penalty after penalty. Uh, he was quite nerveless in his kicking. I mean, that's a pressure cook environment. The triple crown's on the line. You're up against a team, uh, it's a very good English team. You know, your team's going well, but you're a young guy, um, kind of. I, th- I thought he was superb because not only did he kick nervelessly and, and he was 100% um, from penalties and conversions when he came on uh, by the end of the game, but he also he gave the um, the, the, Wales, the Wales kind of back line a bit of front forward uh, football and he gave them a bit of direction that I'm not sure that Big R gave them in the first half. Um, so I, I thought he was, uh, I mean, as much as I thought that um, Tom Curry was outstanding for, for England, I thought Callum Sheedy was outstanding for Wales. Um, and then the 47th minute after a, a sort of a good build-up of play, um, you know, uh, Wales, um, they, they, they kind of got on the ascendancy for a few minutes. Um, and, and then Kieran Hardy caught England napping again um, with another quick tap. Instead of a quick kick to the corner, uh, Wales were awarded a penalty uh, about 10 metres out. And Cal- everyone, you know, I think the England team expecting the scrum to happen and he just tapped the ball quick and 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 burrowed through for a try. Which once again, talking about teams, you know, not you know maybe not not taking things for granted. England were caught napping there, weren't they? They were, do you know. What? And it was a it, it was a great opportunity to try, wasn't it? You know, he, it, was a, it was a classic scrum half poacher try. Yeah, he saw the gap. You know, there was a couple of England players who were slow up off the ground, slow to get back. I think Elliot Daly. Um, had, had sort of turned to the side as if he was walking towards the post to, to wait for the kicker goal. Um, and and off he went un, under the post pretty much, you know. And again, you know, a, akin to the, you know, bigger crossfield kick to Josh Adams in the corner, it's just that piece about someone's always got to be aware. Actually, is a, you know, as, as a rugby player, you should never have your back to the opposition. You, you've always got to get up turn around, be facing them so you know what's coming at you and you can adjust. Um, and the fact that that didn't happen in that game, I think when England had done such a good job of getting them in such a, a good position to, to fight back against all the odds, you know, with what felt like the ref against them, um, they they then just kept switching off and they it felt like England were the architects of their own demise. And ultimately, you know, they actually didn't deserve to win that game having played a good first half. 
um, you know, little little errors like that that creep in. You know, you, you can you can accept one, but it, they just kept creeping in and creeping in during the course of the game, and it was just, it was a it was frustrating to watch, if if I'm honest. Yeah, yeah, it, it must have been um, because because England it was like they were a misfiring car because they as you say they and and it, yeah I I do if you also wanted to say uh, looking at it objectively you did kind of feel like the um, the ref was a little bit against them at times as well um, but but you know you can't really you can't rely on that so you have to put that to one side and and, yeah. and but England were at times once again they never. Full credit to England, though they never let it drop again. They went, they came back again, and the, and then Ben Young scored a, a great try himself in the 60th minute. And uh, you know, after a, a huge phase uh, build-up play, um, uh, you know, um, Ben Young's dash from from the ruck to, to and, and 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 scored a great try that that dragged England right back into it again. You know, like they never. They never let Wales. They never drop their heads and let Wales get away. Um, and and it must have been, as you say, frustrating to see because you you think, well, if England could actually string this together for yeah. uh, for more than sort of five or ten minutes at a time, um, they would they would probably have won that game. But but not, but you have to say Wales also. They what was really impressive about Wales was everybody knew their job absolutely what they had to do. You know what I mean. Well, they just they just kept cool heads, didn't they? And uh, there's never going to be a lack of effort or a lack of skill from uh, from from this England side, you know. It's and, and I think that's what's frustrating because you're right. They they did keep bouncing back and they clawed themselves into it, um, but then they kept sort of undoing that good work. You know? <laughs> yeah. And Wales Wales yeah. were the exact opposite. You know, they were just steady and consistent the entire game. You know, they relied on their defence. You know the defence was solid. Yeah, they gave away a couple of pens, but but nothing much here or there. Um, and they would they would they just stuck to what they were good at, and they made it really easy for themselves. And ultimately, they just sort of let England create their own downfall. Um, you know, you know sides are going to score against you international rugby. You know, yes, defences are very good now, but you know teams are going to score during the course of the game. Um, so, you know, if you can limit the ability for them to get other points on the board, that's what's going to be key for you because you know you're going to get more opportunities during the game. And, and that's what Wales did. And, and it's what England failed to do and, and ultimately cost them towards, well, towards the, the end. whole game. Yeah. But certainly towards the end where yeah. we, got in, we got in really good positions and then conceded a penalty. You know, yeah. defending really well in our own half, give away a penalty. I mean, yeah, yeah, it was. Yeah. I, you know, I've been there, and I've been on, <laughs> I've been on the other side of this, where you know, I've been the person giving away penalties. So I totally understand where the frustrations come from. But you know, you normally have on the pitch <clears throat> an individual, whether it's your defensive captain, whether whoever it might be, there's someone that brings the team in, and it's sometimes a couple of players, and go, lads, look, the penalties are just too much. You know, just don't no fifty fifties. That's normally the call that comes in. Okay. No 50-50s. You just, and you stand off and you just trust your defence and you, you go with 14 men. You know, if, 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 a, if an international side can get through 14 players, you know, on their feet, they're going to be a very talented international side. So, you know, don't give them the opportunity. Eventually they'll knock it on. You'll get a turnover through a quality tackle or, or, or a big hit or, you know, a, a nice turnover, a nice jackal at the breakdown. So, and, and that's where the frustration came for me because it was just the silly little pens that were just un, unnecessary when we had the ball and when we didn't have the ball.
Okay. So, uh, yeah, I think you've summed it up well, actually, for the last quarter of the game. I mean, but with that try and conversion, it was 24-all with 18 minutes to play. So it was, I mean, this was all up for, for anyone here. And, and But I think you've just summed it up well. It just from that point on, um, England kept on giving away silly penalties. Sheedy just kept on slotting them. He hit these beautiful, almost like a golf, like a draw shot on, on golf. He'd just draw the ball uh, through the post. And, um, and so Sheedy kept on slotting penalties they, uh, and uh, and England kept on giving them the chance to, to get them. And so they went from 24 all, down, you know, then 27-24 and then Sheedy scored, uh, scored again. And then, uh, you know, uh, um, it, there was a, it was a goal line scramble where um, you know Wales had pressed and, and, and found a way through, and, and um, Josh Adams had chipped it through for Reece uh, Stamet, um, who who couldn't quite gather the ball, uh, and then there was it ended up being a, a scramble on England's um, try line, uh, which England knocked knocked the ball forward um, with you know with only uh, you know, a couple of minutes left, uh, and um, and Wales. Uh, you know, scored a uh, you know scored a try from uh, from there to make it um, uh, you know 40, um, 40 24, which I think really I mean it was, that was really tough. Uh, that was that, that was tough on England. Um, you know they'd scored you know they'd they'd, they'd scored uh, a couple of really good tries and later in that second half Wales and they really as you say they they turned up the pressure on England and England just I think couldn't quite live with Wales in that last. You know, ten to fifteen minutes, they they just they just struggled, and and I felt that uh, that, that 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 was as you say that that was the kind of the difference really in that last sort of like the, the last sort of eighteen minutes of the game. Wales just heaped on the pressure, scored points relentlessly, uh, and 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 really found England out a little bit towards the end there. Um, so Lewis, uh, looking forward in the competition now. Uh, we know that obviously through the COVID, Wales and um, sorry France and Scotland didn't play their game, but France is obviously a very exciting team as well. And and Wales was kind of written off as a team in this competition uh, before before because they were saying like this is, they call them Dad's Army and these guys are all old and 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 they've seen better days. Uh, looking at what you've seen so far. Uh, who are you impressed by and who do you sort of see? Can Wales go from the Triple Crown and, and go and, and win the Grand Slam or do you think this young French team is is, is maybe a bridge too far for them? Um, well, do you know what? You, you have to... You have to say that Wales have built some brilliant momentum, having come off the back of last season, where you know I think they had eight consecutive defeats at one stage, and Pivac was, you know, doubtful as to whether he'd uh, he'd continue. All of a sudden, to turning it around and being three from three, um, I think you know credit to them. I, I see no reason why they can't continue, because momentum and confidence is on their side now. Whether um, obviously you know the Italy game will be. Uh, Will, I'm sure be an opportunity to to rest some players and uh, and get some younger fresh legs on the pitch for a run around as well to see what the new talent and the new crops coming through is like. Um, but the French game will be the will be the challenge. I really like the French side. There's there's a lot of um, new sort of blood come in with with the change of coaching staff that happened a year or two ago. Now I sort of forget COVID sort of scuppered in my memory when it comes to timelines, but yeah. Um, They've they've looked really exciting, and I, and I don't think you know they've been up and down now for a, for a few years, having been unbelievably consistent for the best part of over a decade. You know, winning Six Nations and, and Grand Slams left, right, and centre. Um, so they seem to have they seem to have found a 
a new uh, a new energy and a new focus with this with this group coming through. So, will they? You know, can Wales get past France? Yes, of course they can. But I, I favour France at the minute. They're they're a talented looking side. They you know they're not the stereotypical French team that is low and hot and cold. Um, they're pretty consistent these days. So, and uh, it's very interesting, isn't it, that they've got um, Sean Edwards there as a defensive coach now, and every team that Sean Edwards seems to touch um, seems to just become exponentially more uh, difficult to get past in defence. He, he seems to be a bit of a master of defence, this guy, doesn't he? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he just clearly gets teams to buy into his approach, and and his approach is very effective. Um, you know, he he frustrates uh, attacking teams. You know, he stops them playing, stifles their ball, finds different ways to... Uh, to, to annoy them and uh, and it works well for the French and especially you know if you can it was always going to be like this for France you sort of feel because they've always had such flair for attack mm. that if they could really get an organised defence or a structure that worked for them um, because you know they they rarely have structure in uh, in French sides so if they could find something that worked then they were always going to be very good because if you combine a, a strong defence with a with a scintillating attack, then you're going to be a, a tidy side, right? So, um, yeah. yeah, I think Sean's a, a wonderful coach. You know, he clearly I don't know what his magic uh, potion is, but he uh, he clearly has the ability to galvanise a side, galvanise a side, and yeah. buy into what he's asking them to do, and, and that's a big key. I think you hit it on the head actually, but the buy-in from the players and that Mike. Um, uh, Mike Phillips has played under Sean Edwards obviously through Wales and he said that was the very thing was you as a player and I think this is kind of overlooked in professional rugby and I'm sure you I'm sure you've had this situation and can identify with this he was he said to me that as a player when you played for Mike Phillips you you just wanted to make him proud you know look because he was so he was so um, detail orientated and results driven with you and, and showed such interest in you as an individual and if you were injured he was on the phone to you wondering how you were and, and it was the small touches of, of of just being there for you that when you went out for him you just wanted to make him proud and, and show him that you were listening and that you want, you know that you were doing the things that he was asking you to do because you, you, you had that kind of uh, uh, you know that want to, to impress him do you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's that uh, it's that sense of belonging. You create a sense of wanting to be a part of something really unique and special, and yeah. you know, it creates loyalty and 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 belief throughout the side that yeah, there's there's more to going out and just playing the game and winning. It's actually doing it for the purpose of the guys next year. You know, throwing yourself on the line. You know, putting yourself in harm's way for each other, not wanting to to miss a tackle, wanting to put in the first big hit. All those things that yeah, you know you that build up to creating great team culture and you know Sean's obviously uh uh you know found the found the magic touch for uh, for getting it right in defense yeah and you uh, obviously with this french team these guys are, are the nucleus of of two under 20 rugby world cups in a row so they've developed this has been a long term project hasn't it they've developed this team up through you know two youth rugby world cups um the nucleus of this team is is there's an old old heads in there too but you know the dupont and all uh, and and these some of these exciting french outside backs that are, are, are kind of uh, are, are been built with a reason in mind uh, and and being aimed at you know at, at, a, at a real tilt at the rugby world cup and um 
And I thought it was an interesting game the other week against Ireland, who really uh, who, who gave them a spirited game. And with French teams in the past might have actually lost that game against a very organised and, 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 and very willing Irish team, uh, but they, they didn't. They held on for a two-point victory, and, and really um, it was really interesting because they – that that's not as something you 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 sort of associate with French teams of of kind of being organised and professional and 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 closing a game out in the last because it was a long time they had to hold against Ireland I think it was about fifteen minutes and they but they did it and they did it with huge professionalism and so there's obviously there's a real plan here when that French team isn't there so it'll be fascinating to see against a very very organized and very capable Welsh team um, who who know exactly you know they've got a lot of old heads they know exactly what to do they showed that against England by basically squeezing the life out of England in the last 20 minutes to go away and win more comfortably than actually the, the scoreline was more comfortable than actually what the game was but they but they were just totally professional and and basically just just basically wore England down. Uh, so they're going to do the same thing against a very exciting French team. So it's going to be really interesting. And the, But we can also not say that Wales can't inject a bit of flair themselves. I, I really like um, Liam Williams, their fullback. I think he's absolutely brilliant, British Lion. Um, I think this this inclusion of Holo Holo, the, the, um, this um, import they've got, he's he's absolutely brilliant. Um, uh, George North is a very exciting player. Reese Zamet's a very exciting player. Um, uh, Sheed, Callum Sheedy's very exciting. So Wales can, can also um, make it exciting and, and run it around if they want to as well. So I think they've got a combination of the two, as you said. And I, uh, so it's going to be a fascinating game, isn't it, Lewis? Because you've got this French team of stars who are really rising stars of the game. And this will be a proper test against Wales who who will have a, have a real plan for them. Um, and then you've got England as well. You know, France um, uh, uh, still have to play this English team. And, um, and, you know, you know, you know, very well, um, England um, can, can roll any team in the world on their day and, and will be pretty annoyed, uh, I would think, and, and will not want to go down without trying to spoil a few parties themselves. Don't you think? Well, I mean, you know, uh, anything but two wins from two the next two games for England would be, you know, abject failure in this tournament, basically. You know, but, you know, Ireland and France are two very difficult games for England to go and uh, to go and play now. But, you know, and, and having lost to Scotland at home, you know, those those home games are normally the bread and butter for England. You know, having France come to England, they're probably one of the, if not the form side in the Six Nations, that's... That's going to be two tough matches. But as you said, they can roll them. And I would expect them to win those last two matches. Um, yeah. the, the Irish game in particular. But I've predicted lots of things, as so we all, <laughs> you know, sport, yeah. sport's a funny game, isn't it? You know, I think when you, it is, uh, yeah. when the, when things aren't against you and, uh, you know, forms falling away for whatever reason, despite the quality and the, and the previous form, you know, that England have showed in the last two competitions, winning the last two, you know, semi-final of the World Cup two years ago. I mean, it just shows you sports are a fickle thing, right? It changes very quickly and staying consistent is, is very difficult. So um, England will need two big performances. And, uh, you know, I, I look forward to watching the, the Wales-France game in particular because, you know, that'll be an exciting one to... To, to finish off the tournament, why too? Yeah. You know, and and hope that after Wales's last season of miseries, that you know they can come through actually and uh, and sneak something. 
Yeah, uh, it, yeah, it's really building up to a, a, a really good crescendo, this competition. It's been a great competition to see, uh, you know, and as you say, momentum's a, a big thing, and Wales have definitely got that, and so have France and, and England. We're going to have to find a way to, to rebuild it again. Just before we finish, Lewis, um, I just want to uh, ask you um, uh, uh, about Mario Otoje. Uh, and there's been a bit of talk of him about, you know, possibly, you know, a Lions captain. Uh, would you look at Toji as a Lions captain? Um, I, I, I think he's a wonderful player, uh, uh, but I'm interested to know what, what you think of Toji and, and, and possibilities of, of that kind of role for him. Do you know what I, I would? I think I touted him as a Lions captain before the last Lions <laughs> um, tour back in whatever it was, what, 2017 now. Right. You know, and he, even as a young man then, having played a handful of international seasons you just feel he's got that sort of natural leadership quality you know for me akin to martin johnson where you know he just has natural leadership you know he's you know he's the bloke leading by example yes he gave away a few penalties at the weekend but he was in the opposition's face from the word go applying pressure to the scrum half charge downs turnovers big tackles you know carrying the ball mm. hard um and he's just a he's an inspirational bloke to watch. So goodness knows what he's like to to play with. Um, mm. So for me, you know, sometimes, and especially on a on a Lions tour when you come together for such a short period of time, actually, it's not about having the, you know, the 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 greatest reader of the game or anything like that. It's having a bloke that's going to inspire you to win and and that makes good and that makes good decisions. But you know, decisions are made collectively. You know, yes, the captain is the person at the figurehead, but he's got a leadership group around him of, of, of information that's going to be drip-fed to him. If the kicker wants the points, he thinks it's in his range, he's going to put his hand up. You know, if, if they think they can put it in the corner because the scrums, you know, the, the line-out's strong than they were if they want to, you know. And and for me, Itoje's the sort of character that he just he just leads naturally. And I would absolutely have him as a, as a Lions captain if he's playing well enough through this tournament, which... You know, he did play well at the weekend. Yes, he gave away a few penalties, but he's the sort of tenacious character that pushes your team hard and expects more and yeah. demands high standards. You know, but um, who'd count against yeah. the old stager, Alan Wynne Jones, <laughs> holding out for. Oh, he was. Oh, he, he is so. God, that guy is so impressive, isn't he? Yeah, yeah, I mean, he's yeah. amazing, that guy. Yeah, yeah, he is. I mean, you know, what? I, don't, I have no idea how many caps he's got now, but it is a hell of a lot. And to be able to play that many test matches in. You know, in that position and, and be that consistent, um, you know, it, it is quite remarkable. And the way that he does it as well, he's such a, you know, humble, nice bloke behind the scenes and, and just so fiercely dedicated to his team as you'd expect on it. Um, yeah, just, uh, you know, I've got I've got a lot of time for, for Alan Wynne Jones. Um, but yeah, but yeah, yeah, in answer to your question, yes, I'd, I'd 100% have a Toje as a, as a candidate for Lions captain because I think he's got all the qualities. Yeah, I, I I do too. Well, look, Lewis, I'm I'm going to leave you um, now. I, I, I've taken up way too much of your time, so I really really appreciate. Thank you so much for for coming on uh, Man of the Stand and uh, and and talking about this uh, really interesting tournament with me. It's nice to talk about your career as well and and look back. Uh, I really appreciate it. So, um, thank you very very much, and I hope uh, the listeners um, enjoy it. Pleasure, mate, and uh, and good luck with the with the rest of the podcast. Take it easy, mate. Thanks, mate. Thank you.